today on Lawfare No Bull. On June 21st, the House Judiciary Committee held a hearing to discuss Special Counsel John Durham's recently released report that examined the origins and conduct surrounding the FBI's crossfire hurricane investigation into allegations of Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. The committee heard testimony from Durham. Three years ago, in 11 months, July 24th, 2019, Bob Mueller sat in this room, in that chair, and told this committee, no collusion, no conspiracy, no coordination between President Trump and Russia. None. What the Democrats say? We don't care. We're going to keep going after President Trump. In fact, they didn't even wait one day. The next day, the phone call between President Trump and President Zelensky became the basis for their impeachment. Republicans said maybe, maybe instead of the never-ending attacks on President Trump, maybe the country would be better off if we figured out how the whole false Trump-Russia narrative started. After two and a half years of the Mueller investigation, 19 lawyers, 40 agents, $30 million, where they found nothing, maybe, maybe we should figure out how the whole lie started. And that's exactly what Mr. Durham has done. In his report, he told us how the dossier was funded. He told us who funded how eager the FBI was to use it, how they put the dossier in a FISA draft application just two days after receiving it. He told us that not one, not one single substantive allegation in the dossier was ever corroborated, ever validated, yet it was used used to spy on an American citizen associated with the presidential campaign. He told us there was no proper predicate for opening the crossfire hurricane investigation, and maybe most importantly, he told us the FBI, the FBI, the preeminent law enforcement agency in the world, failed, failed in its fundamental mission of adherence to the rule of law. And unfortunately, I think once again, the Democrats will say, we don't care. It doesn't matter. We're never st going to stop going after President Trump. In fact, eight days ago, we saw how far they are willing to go with the indictment of President Trump. But frankly, this shouldn't surprise us. They told us their objective. In fact, it was an agent on the case of Crossfire Hurricane who told us what their objective was. We all remember the text message from Peter Strzok where he said, don't worry, we'll stop Trump. It started with the crossfire hurricane investigation. Mr. Durham has told us how wrong that was. Now we have an indictment of a former president who's winning in every single poll by his opponent's Justice Department. And in between those two events, we had the Mueller investigation, we had impeachment, we had 51 former intel officials falsely falsely tell us the Biden laptop was Russian disinformation. We had a raid on President Trump's home, and of course, we got Alvin Bragg's ridiculous case in New York. Seven years, nothing has changed. Don't believe me? We interviewed Stephen D'Antuano, former head of the Washington field office when the Trump classified document case began. Mr. D'Antuano told the committee, we interviewed him just two weeks ago, two weeks ago today. Mr. D'Antuano told the committee that when he asked the Department of Justice, why is there new, no U.S. attorney assigned to the Trump classified document case? Headquarters said, because we're running it. He suggested the Miami field office should do the raid. Instead of sending the folks from Washington field office down to Miami, 
How the folks in, in the Miami field office do it? Headquarters said no. He suggested there shouldn't be a raid. Instead, they should continue to work with President Trump's lawyers. Once again, headquarters said no. Mr. D'Antuano even said, how about when we get there? When we arrive at President Trump's home, we then call his lawyer and we do the search together. Again, headquarters said no. Another interesting fact, the lawyer who turned down Mr. D'Antuano's request happens to be the same person who is alleged to have pressured the attorney representing a Trump employee about a judgeship. Nothing has changed, and frankly, they're never going to stop. Seven years of attacking Trump is scary enough, but what's more frightening, any one of us could be next. In fact, it's already started. Parents at school board meetings are terrorists. Pro-life Catholics are extremists. Even journalists aren't safe. Federal Trade Commission, 13 letters. One of those letters to Twitter said, who are the journalists you're talking to? Think about that. They named four people personally to come and testify in front of this committee. While they're in front of this committee, Democrats are asking them to reveal their sources, violate First Amendment principles. One of them, Matt Taibbi, while he's sitting at that table testifying to the Judiciary Committee, the IRS is knocking on his door. Parents, Catholics, journalists, but guess who gets it the worst? Guess who gets it the worst? Whistleblowers. If you dare come forward and tell Congress what's going on, look out. They will come for you. They will take your clearance. They will take your pay. They'll even take your kids' clothes. Just ask Garrett O'Boyle, who testified in front of this committee as well. Over the next few hours, we're going to hear the facts and details about the whole false Trump-Russia narrative, the crossfire hurricane investigation, and hopefully, hopefully it will help change things at the Department of Justice. But regardless of what the Biden administration and the Garland Justice Department do, I know what Republicans in the House are committed to doing. We will work to dramatically change the FISA law, and we will do everything we can in the appropriations process to stop the federal government from going after the American people. On June 8th, a grand jury in Miami indicted former President Trump on 37 counts related to his mishandling of extraordinarily sensitive national security information, including information regarding defense and weapons capabilities of both the United States and foreign countries, United States nuclear programs, potential vulnerabilities of the United States and its allies to military attack, and plans for possible retaliation in response to a foreign attack. According to the indictment, the unauthorized disclosure of these classified documents could put at risk the national security of the United States, foreign relations, the safety of the United States military, and human sources, and the continued viability of sensitive intelligence collection methods. And indeed, the indictment goes on to describe how the former president made such unauthorized disclosures. Even if you believe, as Chairman Jordan claims, that President Trump has committed no crime, surely we can agree that it is dangerous and profoundly irresponsible to have taken these documents from the White House and left them unsecured in Mar-a-Lago. Don't take just my word for it. Trump's Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, said that the former president's handling of this information put U.S. service members' lives and our national security at risk. And Trump's hand-picked Attorney General, Bill Barr, 
with whom I agree on very little, hit the nail on the head when he described the former president's legal troubles as, quote, entirely of his own making. He had no right to these documents. The government tried for over a year, quietly and with respect, to get them back, and he jerked them around. When he faced a subpoena, he didn't raise any legal arguments. He engaged in a course of deceitful conduct. That was a clear crime if those allegations are true, close quote. The former president could have at any time for months simply returned the documents and avoided prosecution. But House Republicans do not want to talk about any of that. They seem incapable of assigning any agency or responsibility to Donald Trump for problems that are Trump's and Trump's alone. Instead, Republicans have planned this hearing and constructed an entire false narrative around this work of special counsel Durham in an effort to distract from the former president's legal troubles and mislead the American public. To be clear, the Durham report is by itself a deeply flawed vessel. After four years, thousands of employee hours, and more than six and a half million dollars in taxpayer dollars, special Dur counsel Durham failed to uncover any wrongdoing that Justice Department Inspector General Horowitz had not already found in 2019. He brought just two cases to trial and lost them both. Both defendants were acquitted in mere hours. The single conviction that Special Counsel Durham obtained involved a single charge of lying to the FBI, a case developed and handed to him by the Inspector General, and one resolved by a quick plea bargain. The report itself outlined some fairly glaring investigative missteps. The FBI apparently never even looked at a thumb drive of key evidence related to allegations of contact between the Trump campaign and the Russian government via a Russian cell phone. Nor, says the report, did the FBI ever examine questionable computer contacts between the Trump Organization and Alpha Bank, one of the largest banks in Russia. The report also fails to recommend a single remedial measure that the Justice Department or the FBI might take to address certain process-related concerns, largely because DOJ and FBI have already implemented the changes recommended by the Inspector General three and a half years ago. Now, I understand that, like the former president, many MAGA Republicans had a lot riding on the Durham investigation. I understand that they might be disappointed with where it landed, but that is no excuse for making things up. First, the Durham report unequivocally concludes that the FBI not only had the evidence to open an investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election, but actually had an affirmative obligation to investigate ties between the Russian government and the Trump campaign. It is simply not true, as some Republicans have claimed, that the Durham report suggests that there should not have been an investigation. Affirmative obligation. Those are Mr. Durham's words, not mine. Second, the Durham report shows that the FBI began its investigation when an aide to the Trump campaign disclosed in May 2016 that the campaign knew that Russia had thousands of emails that would embarrass Hillary Clinton. The aide bragged about it at a bar. An Australian diplomat who overheard the remark reported it, and the investigation began. It is simply not true, as the most extreme voices in this room have claimed, that the investigation was somehow launched by the Clinton campaign. That con particular conspiracy theory is off by several months. Nor is it true that the FBI was opposed to Trump from the beginning. 
For example, the Durham report tells us that the FBI encouraged a confidential human source to infiltrate the Clinton campaign, not the Trump campaign, and take steps to entrap, unsuccessfully, aides to Secretary Clinton. This story is right there on pages 74 and 75 of the report. I suspect we won't hear a word about it from House Republicans today because it does not fit the MAGA narrative. Finally, nothing in the Durham report disputes the central findings of Special Counsel Robert Mueller. Namely, Russia interfered in the 2016 election. It did so to help Donald Trump, and the Trump campaign welcomed this interference. This last point is important because it tells us how Mr. Durham became Special Counsel in the first place, and it goes to the heart of the fully false narrative of MAGA victimhood. From the day that Special Counsel Mueller began his work, Donald Trump and his political allies have railed against an imagined conspiracy against the former president. The Russia investigation was a setup. It was a witch hunt. Obama did it. We need to investigate the investigators. Then came the Mueller report. The Mueller report was delivered to Attorney General Barr on Friday, March 22, 2019. The next Monday, Mr. Durham was in Barr's office. A week later, a colleague emailed Mr. Durham to ask about, quote, the project that Durham and Barr were working on. While we on this committee were fighting to get access to the Mueller report, Mr. Durham was already working on an investigation to undercut its central findings. A few weeks later, the Trump administration announced Mr. Durham's investigation into the investigators. And by August 2019, Mr. Durham and Attorney General Barr were on a plane to Europe jointly hunting down non-existent evidence of Donald Trump's deep state conspiracy theories. If the duo ever found evidence proving that Donald Trump was right all along, that evidence certainly never made it into the Durham report. It has been alleged, however, that they found evidence implicating the former president in certain financial crimes during their trip. Incidentally, that information, too, is missing from Mr. Durham's final pages. When he could not give Donald Trump evidence of a deep state conspiracy, Mr. Durham gave him the next best thing, a public narrative with Hillary Clinton as the victim, villain. Over the ensuing years, Mr. Durham constructed a flimsy story built on shaky inferences and dog whistles to far-right conspiracy theorists. Although he lost both times, he took a case to trial. By prolonging his investigation, Durham was able to keep Donald Trump's talking points in the news long after Trump left office. With a loose approach to DOJ norms, protecting the reputation of the agency, and a cavalier disregard for the privacy and reputational rights of others, Mr. Durham's investigation operated as headline generator for MAGA Republicans. Less than half a year into his four-year investigation, Mr. Durham publicly disputed Inspector General Horowitz's conclusion that the FBI was warranted in opening a full investigation in violation of DOJ rules protecting investigations from appearances of political bias. Mr. Durham similarly flouted guidelines designed to protect third parties from reputational injury when he used his two indictments to accuse the Clinton campaign of a vast conspiracy to tie Trump to Russia. But at the end of the day, Mr. Durham never found what he was looking for. He cannot dispute a single conclusion in the Mueller report. He cannot prove a magnificent deep state conspiracy. And he cannot say that the FBI investigation into the Trump campaign's many ties to Russia never should have happened. And again, 
I can see why this would be disappointing to some. But instead of owning up to his failure, the Durham report doubles down on theories that lost spectacularly before two unanimous juries. The report also references classified material that has been called likely disinformation to lay out a series of accusations against the former president's perceived enemies. By presenting his so-called findings in this way, swiping a Republican boogeyman and hiding an inconvenient truths in footnotes, the Durham report gives Donald Trump one last talking point. It did not have to be this way. It may be hard to remember, but at the outset of the Durham investigation, Mr. Durham was a well-respected career prosecutor with a solid reputation. The Attorney General is supposed to appoint the special counsel to prevent the appearance of politicization in a criminal investigation. Mr. Durham could well have lived up to that expectation. Instead, what we got was a political exercise that operated with ethical ambiguity and existed to perpetuate Donald Trump's unfounded claims. The investigation failed in its political objectives, but did real damage to a department that is still recovering from the excesses of the Trump administration. And despite Mr. Durham's best efforts, a reckoning is well underway. Do not be misled. Former President Donald Trump is not a victim. He did this to himself. For all of its flaws, the Durham report does not show that anyone else is responsible for the president's legal woes, past, present, or future. Anyone who tells you otherwise is simply making it up. I thank the chairman, and I yield back. As the committee knows, on May 13, 2019, Attorney General Barr directed me to conduct a preliminary review into certain matters related to federal investigations concerning the 2016 presidential election campaigns. That review subsequently um, developed into several criminal investigations and gave rise to my subsequent appointment as special counsel in these matters. Many of the most significant issues documented in the report that we have written, including those relating to lack of investigative uh, discipline, failure to take logistical, logical investigative steps, and bias are re uh, relevant to important national security interests that this committee and the American people are concerned about. If repeated and left unaddressed, these issues could result in significant national security risks and further erode the public's faith and confidence in our justice system. As we said in the report, um, our findings were sobering. And tell you, having spent 40 years plus as a federal prosecutor, they were particularly sobering to me. A number of my colleagues who uh, spent decades in the FBI themselves, they were sobering. While I'm encouraged by some of the reforms that have been implemented by the FBI, the problems identified in this report, anybody who actually reads the report and the details of the report, the documented portions of the report, I think would uh, find that um, the problems identified in the report are not susceptible to overnight fixes. As we said in the report, they cannot be addressed solely by enhancing training or additional policy requirements. Rather, what is required is accountability, both in terms of the standards to which our law enforcement personnel uh, hold themselves and in the consequences they face for violation of laws and policies of relevance. I'm here to answer your questions. I appreciate the opportunity to. I'll answer them to the best of my ability, and I hope to be of service to your oversight function. 
As I'm sure you know, the Department of Justice um, has issued some guidelines as to what I'm authorized to discuss and those things that I am not authorized to discuss. In this regard, uh, accordingly, I'll refer principally to the report. I do want to emphasize a few points at the outset, however. First, I want to emphasize in the strongest terms possible that my colleagues and I carried out our work in good faith, with integrity and in the spirit of following the facts wherever they lead without fear uh, or favor. At no time and in no sense did we act with a purpose to further partisan or political ends to the extent that somebody suggests otherwise that's simply untrue and offensive. Second, the findings set forth in this report are serious and deserve attention from the American public and its representatives. Let me just briefly highlight a few of those. For one, we found troubling violations of law and policy in the conduct of highly consequential investigations directed at members of a presidential campaign and ultimately a presidential administration. To me, it matters not whether it was a Republican campaign or a Democrat campaign. It was a presidential campaign. Our team comprised dedicated and experienced prosecutors and law enforcement agents who worked day in and day out through the entire um, COVID epidemic in the office trying to interview people, all in an effort to try to get to those facts and the ground truth. Uh, that such a group of people made these findings, experienced FBI agents, experienced prosecutors, not people by and large from Washington, but from other parts of the country. The fact that these people made these findings, as reflected in the report, um, is of concern um, and should be of concern to any American who cares about our civil liberties, the rule of law, and the just and proportionate application of the law to all of us. Whether we're friends or we're foes, the law ought to apply to everybody in the same way. During our investigation, we charged a former FBI agent who pleaded guilty to the felony offense of altering and fabricating a portion of a document used to obtain a court order, a FISA order, of a surveillance of a United States citizen, which in our view is a significant problem. Several of the relevant FISA applications at issue um, in the Crossfire investigation omitted references to what was clearly relevant and highly exculpatory information that should have been disclosed to the FISA court. Multiple FBI personnel who signed or assisted in preparing renewal applications for that same FISA warrant acknowledged that they did not believe that the target, Mr. Page, was a threat to national security, much less a knowing agent of a foreign power, which is what the law requires. It appears from our investigation that the FBI leadership dismissed those concerns. Another aspect of our findings concerned the FBI's failure to sufficiently scrutinize information it received or to apply the same standards to allegations it received about the Clinton and Trump campaigns. As our report details, the FBI was uh, too willing to accept and use politically funded and uncorroborated uh, opposition research, such as the Steele dossier. The FBI relied on the dossier and FISA applications, knowing that it was uh, likely um, material originating from a political campaign, a political opponent. It did so even after the President of the United States, the FBI and CIA directors and others received briefings about intelligence suggesting that there was a Clinton campaign plan underway to stir up a scandal tying Trump to Russia. The accuracy of the intelligence was uncertain at the time, 
but the FBI failed to analyze or even assess the implications of the intelligence in any meaningful way. When the FBI learned that the primary source of information for the Steele dossier, which was basically the guts of the narrative about there being a well-coordinated um, uh, conspiracy involving Trump and the Russians, when they learned that uh, Danchenko was the um, uh, primary subsource uh, for those reports, is at the time when the FBI already knew that Denchenko himself had previously been the suspect of an FBI espionage investigation. He was suspected of being a Russian asset. Um, and nonetheless, they signed him up as a paid informant without further investigation of that espionage concern to say nothing of resolving that espionage matter before using Denchenko and Denchenko's information. And when the FBI and Special Agent Mueller's office learned that Steele's primary subsource likely had gathered important portions of the dossier information uh, during travels to Russia with uh, one Charles Dolan, it inexplicably decided not to interview Dolan uh, or investigate his activities. Finally, I would like to add that although our work exposed uh, deep concerns um, concerning facts about the conduct of these investigations, our report should not be read to suggest in any way that Russian election interference was not a significant threat. It was. <laughs> Nor should it be read to suggest that the investigation, um, the investigative authorities at issue uh, are no longer serve important law enforcement and national security interests. They do. Rather, responsibility for the failures and transgressions that occurred here rests with the people who committed them or allowed them to occur. Again, to my mind, the issues raised in the report deserve close attention from the American people and their elected representatives here in Washington. Mr. Durham, in your report, and again here today, you said that your findings and conclusions are sobering. Could you unpack a little bit more what that means? Why do you say sobering? Well, let me, let me um, give you some real-life um, views on that. I have had um, any number of FBI agents um, who I've worked with over the years, some have retired, some are still in place, who have come to me and apologized for the manner in which uh, that investigation was undertaken. I take that seriously. These are good, hardworking, the majority of people in the FBI, the decent human beings who swear to, uh, under their oaths to uh, abide by the law and, and the like. And uh, I think that, that uh, typifies, exemplifies of, uh, the, of the concern here. Um, there, is, uh, there are investigative activities undertaken or not undertaken here uh, which raise real concerns about whether or not the law was followed, the policies in place, the FBI were followed. Um, you wrote in your report, quote, based on the evidence gathered in the multiple exhaustive and costly federal investigations of these matters, including the instant investigation, neither U.S. law enforcement nor the intelligence community appears to have possessed any actual evidence of collusion in their holdings at the commencement of the Crossfire investigation. To date, has any evidence of collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia ever been uncovered? I mean, there is, there is information, obviously, in the um, report that was prepared by Director Mueller uh, and whatnot. But as uh, to collusion or conspiracy, I'm not aware of any. And, and, when, and, and let me stop you. When the FBI opened Crossfire Hurricane, that's the issue at hand, it did not have any information that anyone in the Trump campaign had ever been in contact with Russian intelligence officials. Isn't that right? As we wrote in, as we wrote in the, um, uh, the report, we talked to the director of the CIA, the deputy director of the CIA, the director of NSA, um, uh, and people within the uh, FBI 
and there was no such information that they had in their holdings at the time they opened Crossfire Hurricane. What we know now is the FBI and the DOJ have been turned into activated political weapons against citizens and even a former president because of their opposing viewpoints, sir. Um, they failed to follow protocols in 2016, and you suggested new protocols may somehow be affixed to this. How can the American people have confidence that if they didn't follow, follow protocols in 2016 that they will do protocols? And I think that's why um, I said that in the opening remarks, you know, this is not an easy fix. I mean, it's going to take time uh, to rebuild the public's confidence in the institution. The changes of the forms they have made are certainly changes that are going to guard to some extent against the repeat of what happened in Crossfire Hurricane. Ms. Durham, your investigation cost more than $6.5 million, involved the work of dozens of FBI employees and federal prosecutors, some of whom resigned in protest and took roughly four years to complete. Is that correct? No. It's not correct. No, I mean, there were multiple did, parts of that. Did it take four years to complete? Correct. Okay. And with all these resources and all these people you, you were sent to help you investigate the investigators, you only filed three criminal cases. You only brought two cases to trial, correct? Correct. And you lost all the cases you brought to trial, correct? Correct. In fact, two juries acquitted your defendants on all charges. And the one conviction that you obtained, the defendant pleaded guilty to a single count that never went to trial, correct? Correct. The FBI opened up Crossfire Hurricane without speaking to the people who provided the initial information. Is that true? That's correct. The FBI opened Crossfire Hurricane on a Sunday, only three days after reviewing that information. Is that correct? That's correct. Mr. Durham, the FBI opened Crossfire Hurricane without interviewing any of the essential witnesses. Is that true? That's true. And the FBI also opened up Crossfire Hurricane without using any of the standard analytical tools typically employed to evaluate that evidence. Is that true? That's true. Mr. Durham, if the FBI had done these things, if they had done their homework, would it have found that its own Russian experts had no information about President Trump being involved with Russian leadership or Russian intelligence officials? Yes. So then, was there adequate predication for the FBI to open Crossfire Hurricane as a full investigation? On July 31st, in my view, based on our investigation, there was not a legitimate basis to open as a full um, investigation. Um, an assessment is something that had to be looked at, to gather information, such as interviewing the people who provided um, the uh, Papadopoulos information, checking their own databases, the databases of other intelligence agencies, and the standard kinds of things that you would do in an investigation like this. From the report, I gathered that key FBI leaders, all the way at the top, were predisposed to go after candidate Trump. This bias likely affected the conduct of FBI personnel in this investigation. Is that true? Yes. Can you describe that for a moment? How did confirmation bias play into this? Confirmation bias, as uh, was alluded to, uh, has to do with our uh, human tendency to um, accept things that we already think are true and to reject anything else. In this instance, there are any number of significant red flags <clears throat> that were raised that were simply ignored. If there's evidence that was inconsistent with the narrative, um, they didn't pay attention to it. They didn't explore it. They didn't take the logical investigative steps that should have been taken. Based on the uh, information provided to the U.S. government by Australia that a campaign uh, aide had told one of their diplomats that the Russians had dirt on Clinton in the form of thousands of emails that 
and this is a quote from your report, as an initial matter, there's no question the FBI had an affirmative obligation to closely examine the Australian information. So that's in your report. And I think the issue might be preliminary versus full, because you agree that there was an obligation to look at it based on that. Is that correct? That's what you say. When you say based report. on that, uh, some of the premises of the question are inaccurate. Uh, Papadopoulos did not tell the. Uh, no, uh, the question is do you disavow what you said in your report? That you had an affirmative obligation, the FBI, to look at that? The answer to that question, but they had to look at it, yes. All right. I want to take a look at some of the other things uh, that I didn't find in your report. In looking at the FBI's behavior, uh, did you find any uh, evidence? that the FBI was uh, taking a, a look at the, at the hacking of the Democratic National Committee and w their investigation of that? And if so, where is that in your report? That was outside the scope of what I was asked to do. And, and in the Mueller report, we found, he found, that the campaign manager, Mr. Manafort, was giving inside information, private polling data, to the Russians. Uh, that there was a meeting in Trump Tower with the president's son-in-law and his son uh, where the Russians had promised they had dirt and the email from the president's son was something to the effect, if so, we love it. Did the FBI look at that? Did you examine that? And if so, where is that in your report? That is not something I was asked to look at, and we didn't look at that. I'm wondering, did you take a look at how the FBI evaluated um, the alleged ties to Alpha Bank. Did you hire uh, cyber experts to actually take a look at those potential or alleged ties? Yes. Well, I didn't hire them. They were FBI experts. You and Attorney General Barr went to Italy to take a look at some allegation about foreign servers, and, and Italian officials gave you evidence that they said linked Donald Trump to certain financial crimes. Did the Attorney General ask you to investigate that matter that the Italians referred to you? And, and if so, did you take any investigative steps and did you file charges or if not, did you file a declination memo for decision not to charge in this case? The uh, question is outside the scope of what I think I'm authorized to talk about. It's not part of the report. I can tell you this, that investigative steps were taken, grand jury subpoenas were issued and it came to nothing. And when the Inspector General issued a report saying that the investigation was properly predicated, you spoke out in violation of Department of Justice, Department of Justice policy, to criticize the Inspector General's conclusions, didn't you? I issued a public statement. I didn't do it anonymously. I didn't do it through third persons. There were- but Nonetheless, you violated department policy by issuing a statement while your investigation was ongoing, didn't you? I don't know that. If I did, then I did, but I was not aware that I was violating some policy. Uh, and you also sought to get the inspector general to um, change his conclusion, did you not? When he was concluding that the investigation was properly predicated, did you privately seek to intervene to change that conclusion? This is outside the scope of the report, but if you want to go there, we asked the uh, Inspector General to take a look at the intelligence that's included in the classified appendix that you looked at and um, said that that ought to affect um, portions of his report. And, and you thought it was appropriate for you to intervene with an independent investigation by the Inspector General because he was reaching a conclusion you disagreed with. You thought that was appropriate. 
That's not, uh, the premise um, isn't right. The Inspector General um, circulated a draft memo to a number of um, agencies and persons. Our group was one of them. We were asked to review that draft and bring to his attention any concerns that we had or disagreements. And the FBI immediately opened Crossfire Hurricane as a full counterintelligence investigation. What other options could the FBI have taken rather than immediately opening such an investigation? Attorney General um, Edward Levy essentially created the guidelines in this area, these three divisions of assessments, preliminary, and then full, although they were different names at the time. That has evolved over time and become more particular. In this instance, um, the information that they had received from Papadopoulos about a suggestion of a suggestion, and not anything about emails, but just a suggestion of a suggestion, was sufficient um, and would have been, uh, would have required the FBI to take a look at, well, what is this about? You open it as an assessment, and then you would analytically go try to collect intelligence that either supports or refutes or explains that information. That's the whole purpose of it. You assess it, and then you can move to a preliminary investigation, and if the evidence bears it out, then you go to a full investigation where you have all the uh, tools available, including the most intrusive uh, physical surveillance and electronic surveillance of U.S. citizens. And here, they just immediately went to open it as a full investigation without ever having talked to the Australians or gathered other evidence. Right, so investigators relied on misstatements by the confidential human source, ignored exculpatory statements made by Papadopoulos in submitting the FICE application to surveil Carter Page, correct? That's correct. Is it true that an FBI employee fabricated this evidence? Can you expand on that? that fabrication and the reliance to support that uh, this sure. application. In, in connection with the one of the extensions, the final extension renewal of the FISA on Carter Page, one of the agents who had come on board wanted to be certain that there was information that uh, was their information as to whether or not Carter Page had been a source of information to the CIA and pressed uh, Kevin Kleinsmith in the um, general counsel's office of the FBI on that point. <clears throat> Kleinsmith got a hold of people at another government agency, intelligence agency, on the issue, and that person indicated, not indicated, said that yes, in the FBI parlance, uh, Carter Page was the source, and put that in writing. <clears throat> when Kleinsmith talked to the agent who was saying, we want to be sure on this, is, was he or was he not a source, Kleinsmith said, no, he said he's not. He said, did we get that in writing? Kleinsmith said yes, and they said, well, I want to see it. And then Kleinsmith altered the other government agency document to reflect this, to say that Page was not a source, when he in fact was a source. That's the gist of it. What did the investigators mean when they said they hoped the returns on the Carter Page FISA application would, quote, self-corroborate? <clears throat> that is another uh, troublesome uh, thing. Maybe agent was saying, well, if we can get on um, um, surveillance, electronic surveillance of Page, then we'll find out essentially whether we really do have probable cause or not. We would self-corroborate in that sense. Are investigators supposed to corroborate information before or after it's included in a FISA application? Yeah. Um, you have to have that before you intrude in the liberties of American citizens. In fact, the FBI is required to follow its Woods procedures, uh, which the FBI adopted to ensure the accuracy of the information contained in FISA applications, correct? That's correct. And did, Fisk, did the FISC ever criticize the FBI's handling of the Page FISA application? Yes. And what were some of those concerns that they raised? Well, ultimately, uh, the FISC uh, issued um, an order, a memorandum, indicating that um, 
uh, had the information that was uh, disclosed in the investigation uh, done by Inspector General Horowitz, a very thorough job uh, and a good job and a well-written report. Had they known that, at least uh, the uh, second and third renewal applications uh, would not have established probable cause. And I think the Bureau, uh, I'm sorry, the, um, uh, the Department of Justice acknowledges that as well. If the FISC had all of the information that uh, I think is included in this report, I think it's highly doubtful that there would have ever been an application submitted, and if it was submitted, that the FISC would have ever granted that order. Mr. Durham, uh, thank you for being here today. On October 3rd, 2016, the FBI met with Christopher Steele, who confessed to relying heavily on a Russian national living in Washington, D.C. as a subsource. Uh, that subsource was later identified as Igor Denchenko. Steele not only used Danchenko to create the dossier, but according to your report, Steele was unable to corroborate any of the substantive allegations made in the dossier. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, even after the FBI offered Steele a million dollars if somehow he could actually follow through and, and underscore some of those uh, specific uh, items. Is that correct? That's correct. So the FBI interviewed Danchenko and Steele subsource, the Steele subsource, for three days, from January 24th through January 26th of 17. However, according to your report, Danchenko could not provide any evidence corroborating allegations contained in the dossier. Is that correct? That's a fact. And yet the FBI paid Danchenko $220,000 during his time as a confidential human source. Is that correct? That's correct. And did the FBI propose making continued future payments to Danchenko, totaling more than $300,000? That's correct. Danchenko becomes a confidential human source, then enlists his own subsource, Charles Dolan, as was brought up earlier, who was a Democrat operative and had previously served as an advisor to Hillary Clinton's 2008 presidential campaign. Is that, is that your understanding? Is that correct? That's correct. Did Danchenko ever disclose his relationship with Charles Dolan to the FBI that you're aware of? He did not during the um, interviews that were conducted in January. Subsequently, he was specifically asked um, in an interview um, with his then handler, do you know Charles Dolan? You listen to the recording. He hesitates for some awkward period of time and says, yes, I know who Dolan is. So he acknowledged knowing uh, Mr. Dolan. The Mueller investigation revealed that Russia interfered in the 2016 election in sweeping and systemic fashion, correct? That's correct. And Russia did so through a social media campaign that favored Donald Trump and disparaged Hillary Clinton, correct? As the report says, yes. And Mueller found that a Russian intelligence service hacked computers associated with the Clinton campaign and then released the stolen documents publicly, is that right? That report speaks for itself as well. Mueller also reported that though he could not establish the crime of conspiracy beyond a reasonable doubt, he also said, quote, a statement that the investigation did not establish certain facts does not mean there was no evidence of those facts. That also appears in the report, doesn't it? It's the language of that effect, yes. In fact, you cited that very statement in your own report, did you not, as a way of distinguishing be between proof beyond a reasonable doubt and evidence that falls short of proof beyond a reasonable doubt? Correct. As an illustration of this, both Mueller and congressional investigations found that Trump's campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, was secretly meeting with an operative linked to Russian intelligence named Konstantin Kalimnik, correct? 
That's my understanding, yes. And that Manafort, while chairman of the Trump campaign, gave that Russian intelligence operative the campaign's internal polling data, correct? That's what I've read in the news, yes. And that Manafort provided this information to Russian intelligence while Russian intelligence was engaged in that social media campaign and the release of stolen documents to help the Trump campaign, correct? You may be getting beyond the uh, depth of my knowledge, but... Well, let me, let me say very simply, while Manafort, the campaign chairman for Donald Trump, was giving this Russian intelligence officer internal campaign polling data, Russian intelligence was helping the Trump campaign, weren't they? I, I, don't, I don't know that. You I really don't, don't know those right. very basic facts of the investigation? I know the general um, facts, yes. Do I know that particular fact myself? No. I mean, I know that I've read that in the media. And are you aware, uh, Mr. Durham, that Mueller and congressional investigations also revealed that Don Jr. was informed that a Russian official was offering the Trump campaign, quote, very high level and sensitive information, unquote, that would be incriminating of Hillary Clinton was part of, quote, Russia and its government support of Mr. Trump? Are you aware of that? Sure, people get phone calls all the time from uh, individuals who claim to have information like that. Really, the son of a presidential candidate gets calls all the time from a foreign government offering dirt on their opponent? Is that what you're saying? I don't think this is unique in your experience. Uh, so you, uh, you have other instances of the Russian government offering dirt on uh, a presidential candidate to the presidential candidate's son. Is that what you're saying? Would you repeat the question? Uh, you said that it's not uncommon to get offers of help from a hostile foreign government in a presidential campaign directed at the president's son. You really stand by that, Mr. Durham? I'm saying that, it, that people can make phone calls um, making uh, claims uh, all the time that you may have experienced. Are you really trying to diminish the significance of what happened here and the secret meeting that the president said Sons set up in Trump Tower to receive that incriminating information. You're trying to diminish the significance of that, Mr. Turner? I'm not trying to diminish it at all, but I think the more complete story is that they met and it was a ruse and they didn't talk about Mrs. Clinton. Uh, and, and you think it's insignificant that he had a secret meeting with the Russian delegation for the purpose of getting dirt on Hillary Clinton, and the only disappointment to express that meeting was that the dirt they got wasn't better. You don't think that's significant? I don't think that that was a well-advised thing to do. Oh, no. oh, not, not well-advised. Right. Well, that's, that's the understatement of the year. So you think it's perfectly appropriate or, or maybe just ill-advised for a presidential campaign to secretly meet with a Russian delegation to get dirt on their opponent? You would merely say that's inadvisable? Yeah, if you're asking me what I do, it, I, don't, I hope I wouldn't do it. But it's, it was not illegal. Uh, it was... It's stupid, foolish, ill-advised. Well, it, it is illegal to conspire to get uh, incriminating opposition research from a hostile government that is of financial value to a campaign. Wouldn't that violate campaign laws? I don't know. I don't know all those facts to be true. Well, your report, Mr. Durham, doesn't dispute anything Mueller found, did it? No, our, our object, our aim, was not to dispute Director Mueller. I have the greatest regard, highest regard for Director Mueller. And President Biden, through the Attorney General, could have had you removed, fired. Is that right? Um, I'm sure he could have. And you stayed on? I uh, completed my term as special counsel. Was there anyone you wanted to indict that you were prohibited from indicting by Attorney General Garland? No. Did you have staff 
on your team advise you against making statements during the pendency of your investigation? They didn't advise me either way, no. Did any of your staff raise ethical concerns about your speaking out either in an interim report uh, or after the Inspector General investigation? Did any of you, your staff raise ethical concerns with your doing so? Not that I recall, no. A yeah, raise a technical concern, no, not that I'm aware of. Did they raise concerns with your speaking out during the pendency of the investigation? Time of the gentleman has expired. The witness can respond. I'm sorry. Uh, um, Did any of your staff seen? raise concerns about your speaking out during the pendency of your investigation in contrast to DOJ policy? Not that I recall. Thank you. Gentleman yields back. Gentleman from Florida is recognized. Good morning, Mr. Durham. Can I just complete that answer, Warren? I, I, but I don't want to lay any blame at their point. I made that decision to make a statement. They, they were not involved in it. To begin with, so FISA surveillance application must include an affidavit from a federal law enforcement officer, correct? That's correct. And that affidavit must demonstrate cause to believe that the target of the surveillance is an agent of a foreign power. Is that also right? Right. If it relates to a U.S. citizen, it has to be that they're a knowing agent. If it's a non-U.S. person, a knowing element is not required. And it is intended that that affidavit should rely upon reasonable, trustworthy information, is it not? That's correct. Right. And in some cases, and including the case of Carter Page, those affidavits, that information can include the use of information obtained from a confidential human source, correct? That's correct. And when information from a confidential human source is included, uh, would you agree that it's important that material related to the reliability or trustworthiness of that confidential human source is disclosed within the affidavit? Yes. And I believe you testified here earlier today that in this case, information in that Carter Page application related to the reliability and credibility of the confidential human source was not included in these, in these applications. Is that right? I, think, I, I believe that's correct. Okay. Would you tell us, in your experience, in your many years working with the department, why is it important that that type of information is included and disclosed to both federal prosecutors and to the court? There's, uh, um, when, when matters are submitted uh, to the court, it's for a reason or to a judge. It's to let an independent judicial officer uh, weigh the question as to whether probable cause exists or not. In providing that information to independent, objective judicial officers, judicial magistrates, if there's confidential human source information that's being provided, it's important for the person, the judge who's reviewing this, to know uh, what's the basis of the person's knowledge? Is it hearsay or do they have personal knowledge, as an example? And then whether or not there's some track record or basis to believe that the information would be credible coming from this person. And of course, at this stage of the proceeding, the person who's the subject of the investigation has no idea that this application is even being made or considered or reviewed by the court in most cases. So That's it's correct. solely less with, rests with the government, the responsibility to ensure that this power, that this surveillance power that's being used is being done in a way that is appropriate and compliant with the law. That's correct. And you mentioned something earlier about that in this case, agents immediately moved to the most intrusive investigative means that were available, referring, of course, to the interception of live communications, correct? That's correct. In this instance, the Bureau almost immediately, when they opened it as full investigations, 
is the umbrella case, um, Crossfire Hurricane, and then the four subfiles, they immediately uh, went to try to uh, get Pfizer coverage um, on Papadopoulos, which uh, they weren't able to do, uh, and then uh, Carter Page. And some of the techniques for, for law enforcement, you know, there are a myriad of other things they can do to collect surveillance information short of this interception of communications, like uh, poll cameras, pen registers, trap and trace, trash poles, correct? There are many other things that in, in, in investigations are often utilized prior to taking this step of attempting to intercept live communications. Right. Those are typically building blocks uh, for electronic surveillance. One other thing, you mentioned earlier during your testimony that the failures identified during your investigation, that if they were not addressed, they would result in national security risks and continued public lack of confidence in our institutions of justice, that there were no overnight fixes, but we needed accountability standards and consequences. Um, would you elaborate, please? Time the gentleman has expired. The witness can respond. The national security interests that, uh, here include uh, liberties um, uh, of the, uh, the American people. Uh, one of the things that was most disturbing about uh, the dossier, the Steele dossier, is whether or not this is, so at least some of it, was Russian disinformation. Whether Igor Denchenko, who personally wrote that he was responsible for 80 percent of the intelligence in the, um, in the dossier and 50 percent of the analysis, whether or not Mr. Denchenko was the source of uh, Russian disinformation. Um, if you don't run some of those things to ground, it does affect the liberties or potentially affects the liberties of the American people and the national security interests of this country. In your report, not only did the FBI have information, as stated before, that the Australians knew that Trump foreign policy advisor George Papadopoulos had suggested that the Russians we're going to release anonymous information damaging Hillary Clinton. The FBI also knew and had information that the Democratic National Committee was hacked by the Russians and information was being released to the American public. The FBI also had information from various media reports that Trump had relations with different Russian businessmen and the FBI had information that Trump said Quote, Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. The FBI had all that information prior to opening Operation Hurricane, correct? Crossfire Hurricane, is that right? That's correct. Okay. If the FBI had chosen to do so, the multiple pieces of information they had would have allowed them to open a preliminary investigation, is that right? In our report, we say that the FBI certainly uh, had an obligation to uh, assess the information, you know, perhaps make it a preliminary investigation. That's okay. Our In fact, it would have been a dereliction of duty for the FBI to have just sat on their hands and done nothing with the information that they had. Is that right? Yeah. The FBI should not have ignored that information. Okay. Trump's former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, was convicted, correct? That's correct. Not Trump's former foreign policy powers. advisor to the campaign, George Papadopoulos, was convicted, correct? That's correct. Trump's former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, was convicted, correct? That's correct. Trump's longtime advisor, Roger Stone, was convicted, correct? I'm sorry, I missed the last Trump's thing longtime advisor, Roger Stone, was convicted, correct? Correct. Was Danchenko a Russian intelligence source? 
Um, Mr. Denchenko had been investigated uh, by the FBI um, for espionage. They closed the case when they mistakenly thought he had left the country. Um, Mr. Denchenko's um, status in connection with that espionage matter was never resolved uh, by the Bureau. The Bureau, in fact, never uh, opened it. And he was the source for, for much of the Steele dossier. He said that he was responsible for 80% of the intelligence in the dossier. And, and who, commissioned, who commissioned the Steele dossier? Um, the Steele dossier was done by uh, Fusion GPS, who was hired by Perkins Coie, who represented the Clinton um, campaign. Shortly after your appointment, you and A.G. Barr both traveled overseas and met with Italian officials who provided some allegations with respect to criminal activity by the former president, correct? We traveled um, to, well, this is outside the report, so I'm not sure that I'm authorized to talk about it, but we, were, we went to um, uh, Italy to try to pursue leads involving a particular um, um, mysterious professor. The question, I suppose, is what can we do about this situation looking forward? If it's not a crime, uh, but we know it's wrong, what, what should we be doing? And I think you made some suggestions. Can you recite those for us? And what, you spent four years in this space. And there's obviously things going wrong that we can't convict people for, or at least doesn't rise to the level that will warrant that approach. What should we be doing? Yeah, I mean, the, um, the real difficulty, in my view, is trying to figure out um, how to hold people accountable uh, for their conduct. Um, and it's, it's not a simple problem to solve. In the context of the FISA uh, situation, you know, for, for example, or um, maybe it would be the case in any instance in which there's um, what's referred to in the Bureau as a uh, sensitive investigative matter, a SIM, that there are additional rules that, that apply there. You know, maybe there's, it, it's come time where uh, if an agent is going to sign uh, a FISA application in a sensitive investigative matter, that they not only understand that they're signing under the penalties of perjury, um, but if the Bureau determines that they intentionally misstated anything, that their employment will be terminated. I mean, this is this real teeth in when somebody signs an affidavit, swears to something before a judicial officer, there are consequences if that is untrue. There are criminal penalties, but there uh, sure as heck got to be other penalties as well. I mean, there are things like that. In these sensitive cases, I mean, this is not a normal case. This is a presidential election and it affected, it affected the nation. Maybe they ought to instill uh, practice, uh, for example, of red teaming, which we tried uh, to do uh, to an extent in our investigation, which is you have a group of people who take the opposite side to make the arguments to try to point out either where the weaknesses are um, or where additional evidence needs uh, to be uh, developed. Um, it may be that the benefit that the Bureau would benefit, as I said in the report, from having something of an ombudsman who would look at FISA uh, applications or look at the investigative effort under, being undertaken in these uh, uh, sensitive investigative matters, um, who looks at how the investigation is progressing and whether or not, in that person's estimation, uh, the investigation is being done independently and in a disciplined way. Um, there are those kinds of things. But ultimately, I don't know how you hold people um, responsible, absent the, their integrity and that kind of overview or review of what the, um, what the investigation is doing. Did Attorney General Garland permit your inquiry to proceed independently? Yes. Did Attorney General Garland interfere with your inquiry, your investigation in any way? No.
Did Attorney General Garland attempt to prevent or stop you or your team from taking any investigative step that you deemed necessary? He did not. Did Attorney General Garland provide support to your efforts? Um, in terms of um, occasionally we would need some additional personnel. Uh, in a couple of instances, we had a person that was detailed uh, from Maine Justice. Yes. So in that, in that respect, yes. Did Attorney General Garland decline to implement any of the recommendations that you've made? Um, I, don't, I don't know that. The letter, the report, I believe it's on page three uh, of your report, you say, and I'll quote, after the inauguration of President Biden, Attorney General Garland met with the Office of the Special Counsel. The office very much appreciates the support consistent with his testimony, referring to Attorney General Garland, during his confirmation hearings that the Attorney General has provided to our efforts and the Department's willingness to allow us to operate independently, end quote. And you stand by that, I suspect. I do. Correct. Um, did the FBI ever fail to take or delay taking action in an investigation involving Hillary Clinton? Um, I didn't, that wasn't, um, well, there's a portion of the report that re, uh, re, uh, relates to the disparate treatment. So did the FBI um, uh, delay? There are three instances that are identified in the report where the FBI's investigative efforts uh, were considered considerably more disciplined um, than was the case uh, with respect to Mr. Mr. Trump. More discipline, you mean bias, and, and let me move on, Mr. Durham. I don't want to run out of time. Did the FBI give the Clinton campaign a defensive briefing? Um, they gave, in a particular manner, the FBI gave um, Mrs. Clinton's represent, legal represent, uh, representatives uh, a debriefing of a defensive nature, yes. Why wasn't the same done for the Trump campaign and President Trump? We um, explored that during the course of the investigation. The, um, what we learned is set out um, in the report. It would appear from at least what we were told that very little uh, thought went into whether uh, they should give um, anybody in the Trump campaign a defensive briefing. Were you ever encouraged, persuaded, uh, pressured to issue an interim or report prior to the presidential election. And see, without hesitation, I was not pressured into doing anything. Was it suggested to you? It was not suggested to me. And yet it might have been suggested to someone who worked under you, separate from you. I don't believe so. Okay. Your report makes no discussion of the fact that the Email investigation to Hillary Clinton was made very public before the election, was it not? Um, if, if you had I James it, Comey it, discussing Hillary Clinton's emails in the days leading up to the election? If I follow your question, I don't think that the report says that the Clinton administration, that Mrs. Clinton was given more favorable treatment. I think what the report says is that the FBI exercised some considerable discipline in how it was going to approach um, those matters as compared to how the FBI people who were involved in Crossfire Hurricane approached why, Crossfire Hurricane. Why, I think that's what why, the report why, Mr. says. Durham, why, Mr. Durham, would you leave out the glaring contrast between the FBI's public discussion of the Clinton investigation right before the election and its keeping confidential the Trump investigation? Wasn't that a glaring disparity in how they were both treated? Um, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it, 
the, really uh, don't FBI, know the, the FBI the did and Mr. Comey did what uh, what they did. I was asked to. Yes, they did what they did. And in glaring contrast to how they treated the Trump investigation, which was kept secret before the election, whereas the Clinton investigation was discussed publicly affecting the outcome. Isn't that correct? I can tell you that the FBI had that information gentlemen's and sat on it for months before they acted in yes, gentlemen's uh, making time a public disclosure. You also state on page 57 about Australia. Australia could not and did not make any representation about the credibility of information, and that's because they couldn't verify or corroborate that information. Is that true? That's correct. You further go on to say on page 57 that Quote, uh, the uh, Office of Special Counsel found no indication from witness testimony, electronic communications, emails, calendar entries, or other documentation that at the time the FBI gave any consideration to the actual trustworthiness of information the diplomats received from Papadopoulos. Do you remember re uh, writing that portion of the report? I do. Uh, it seems amazing to me that the FBI would not give consideration to the actual trustworthiness of certain information found in an investigation at this level. You write extensively on how the FBI elected to not interview Carter Page, George Papadopoulos, or Charles, Charles Dolan. Would interviews with those key individuals have helped to corroborate or disprove the information that the FBI was receiving? Yes. Through your investigation, did you uncover any reason as to why the FBI elected to not interview these individuals? I know that the... <clears throat> the um People who, with operational people doing the investigation, were told they could not interview um, Mr. Page um, until um, the seventh floor uh, authorized it, and then the director didn't authorize the interview of Mr. Page until March of 2017. Given that kind of politicization of what you did, do you think that you could have exercised more caution again with respect to third parties? I exercised my judgment on, under the uh, guiding principles that I had and whether or not an indictment ought to be returned and uh, decided on that basis. I would say, did I give consideration to what Donald Trump might say about it? I would say that was not part of my consideration. The Mueller report found that Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort knowingly shared internal polling data and information on battleground states with a Russian spy. Did you find this to be untrue? I did not find that to be untrue. Thank you. The Mueller, thank you for that. The Mueller report found that Mr. Manafort shared this internal polling data with a Russian asset with the expectation it would be shared with Putin-linked oligarch Oleg Deripaska. Did you find this to be untrue? I didn't find it to be untrue, but I didn't look at it either. Did you seek a court order to get records from a judge pertaining to private communications and were you turned down by the judge for lack of a sufficient basis? And I've told you Yes or no? I'm it's beyond the report. I don't think I'm authorized to talk about it, and I'm not going to violate it. It's not beyond the report. It's not beyond the report. You see anything in the report about that? Uh, yes. Did you seek an order? And were you turned down? Okay. And then did you seek to go around the court order by going to the grand jury? No. Would you like to know what that was about? What I would like to know, Mr. Durham, is did, did Mrs. Danahy, who resigned from your team, raise ethical concerns about your trying to go around the court order? To my knowledge, no. So Mr. Durham, I think it's really important for us to establish, do you agree that it's important for the Justice Department to be independent from the rest of the executive branch? Yes. And I mean, it was obviously the, the Department of Justice plays some role in connection with the but executive must be independent. decisions. Must have some independence. Right. 
And it was important to you that Attorney General Garland did not interfere with your special counsel investigation, correct? Correct. And in fact, as we mentioned earlier, you thanked him for giving you the latitude to operate without his involvement or interference, correct? correct? But Donald Trump has consistently eroded the barrier between the DOJ and the rest of the executive branch. And during his administration, the Trump interfered in Mueller's prosecutions, such as when he criticized Roger Stone's sentencing recommendations as, quote, horrible and very unfair, which resulted in the DOJ overturning its recommendation and all four career prosecutors handling the case actually withdrew within hours of that decision for ethical objections. Um, are you familiar with the Roger Stone sentencing recommendations? You follow that at all? I'm sorry, the Roger Stone sentencing recommendation? Yes. Um, no. I mean, I know there was one made, but I don't recall what it was. Okay, so regardless of um, the sentencing recommendations, is it appropriate for any present president to interfere with a special counsel's prosecutions? No, the special counsel is supposed to be independent of the Department of Justice. That's right. Are you familiar um, with the January 5th, 2017 meeting that ha was held in the White House? Uh, President Obama was there. Vice President Biden was there. Susan Rice was there and others. Are you familiar with that meeting? I know that that meeting occurred. Um, do you know that... Uh, FBI Director James Comey was there? That's my understanding. Um, did you get access or try to get access to uh, Director Comey's notes? Um, we reviewed, yeah, in connection with our inquiry, we looked at um, phone records, notes, those sorts of things. I don't, I don't recall seeing any notes of uh, Mr. Comey's from, from that meeting. They could exist, but I don't recall having seen them. So as special counsel, you were authorized to investigate whether any federal official employer or any other person violated the law in connection with individuals associated with campaigns and individuals with the administration, including Crossfire Hurricane. Did you think this wasn't relevant to go after these notes? I mean, January 5th, 2017, we're in the process of the transition. Um, weren't you... Um, um, inquisitive about that? Yeah, as I, as I say, I don't know. We had um, sought from the FBI uh, all such records. What I can't tell you is that uh, there were any records. That, that's what I'm saying. Could you repeat that last answer? Sure. When, um, I think as we um, set out in the report, the Bureau produced in excess of, uh, I think it was uh, 6,800,000 ,800 pages of records that were reviewed. Among the records that we sought from the FBI uh, were relevant um, notes, records, uh, uh, telephone records, and the like. What I can't tell you is whether, and Mr. Comey uh, being one of them, um, what I can't tell you, because I just don't know, is whether or not there were notes of Mr. Comey's from that, uh, from that meeting. Are you aware that in 2017, prior to the Department of Justice filing a motion to dismiss the case against General Flynn, they interviewed Mr. Priestap? Um, yes. During that interview, the Department of Justice found Mr. Priestap's notes, which suggested that the FBI was trying to entrap Mr. Flynn. Why didn't you um, 
Why didn't you interview Mr. Priestap? With Why do you think it wasn't relevant to subpoena Mr. Priestap to gather information on his involvement with Crossfire Hurricane, especially the Attorney General at the time said they were trying to lay a perjury trap for Mr. Flynn? Sure. So as uh, relates specifically to uh, Mr. Priestap, and I, this reflected in the report, uh, Mr. Priestap did agree to talk to us with regard to the Alpha Bank matter. So we interviewed him um, uh, on that matter. He was not willing to talk uh, beyond that. Um, as previously indicated, um, we were disappointed with some of these decisions on the part of high-ranking members of the FBI not to cooperate as, as you are. Uh, but there are reasons. You have to, when, if you're going to subpoena somebody to the grand jury, um, which is one of the more powerful tools that you have, you've got to look at a number of factors that determine whether or not it's appropriate, whether it makes sense, whether it be productive. And in, in this case, not speaking to um, Mr. Priestep's situation, um, alone, but one of the decisions was, okay, does Pre-Step have information that would be relevant or is likely to be relevant to the matter, criminal matters, not the general inquiry into what happened in the investigation of the campaign, but the criminal matters the grand jury is looking at or not. Lawfare No Bull is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution and Goat Rodeo. You can support Lawfare's suite of podcasts by joining our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash lawfare. That's www.patreon.com slash lawfare. You should rate and review Lawfare Noble wherever you found us, and you should share us on all the social medias. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>